This is Cuerpa Politica, a podcast about reproductive health, politics and justice in Latin America, funded by the Institute of Latin American Studies and co-hosted by me, Dr. Rebecca Ogden, lecturer in Latin American Studies at the University of Kent. And me, Dr. Rachel Sanchez-Rivera, postdoctoral fellow in sociology at the University of Cambridge. Cuerpa Politica explores reproduction in Latin America through a series of conversations with activists, practitioners, artists, and researchers working in many different contexts. Latin American countries have some of the world's most contentious reproductive health laws and policies, and there are persistent challenges facing the quest for reproductive justice. In these episodes, our conversations with experts will explore contemporary issues, such as those relating to abortion access and obstetric violence, as well as histories of reproductive politics in the region. From the relationship between empire and reproduction, eugenics, 20th century fertility control measures and beyond. In many of the episodes, we consider culture as a lens through which to understand these contexts, exploring how cultural norms, as well as media and the arts, shape the political, legal, and social realities of reproduction and vice versa. Follow the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you access podcasts, and get in contact with us via our social media at Cuerpa Politica on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Dr. Rebecca Smith is a lecturer in law at Birmingham City University, specialising in international human rights law. She focuses on women's and LGBTQ rights and the sometimes productive tensions arising from historically oppressed groups engaging with the language and mechanisms of human rights. Dr. Smith completed her PhD at the University of Edinburgh. Her doctoral thesis focused on campaigns for abortion access in El Salvador and Ireland at the national, regional, international and transnational levels of the human rights systems. Her research has been published in the journal Feminist Review and in the 2020 edited volume Gender Justice and the Law, Theoretical Practices of Intersectional Identity. This episode was recorded on the 21st of October 2021. Welcome, Dr. Rebecca Smith. Thank you for being here. In our conversations so far in this podcast series, we haven't yet looked at or discussed El Salvador. What's distinct about reproductive politics in this context? Right. Um, So I've put together a very quick overview of some of the ways in which El Salvador is very similar to the rest of Latin America, but some of the things that set it apart too. So I think the most important starting point really is that it's really under-researched in academia. And there's also a real lack of international attention in the media. Um, So when you compare it to, say, the US, Ireland, Poland, Argentina, you don't see as much about El Salvador. Uh, When I was doing my research for my PhD, I came across a quote from a book called Landscapes of Struggle, which referred to El Salvador as Latin America's least researched nation state. And even though that was written in 2004, 17, nearly 18 years later, it's still very much the case. Um, On top of that, it's a particularly challenging context, I think, in El Salvador when it comes to reproductive freedom. So again, as I said, there's common themes compared to many other Central and Latin American countries, but taken all together and given their particular manifestations, it compounds the difficulties. So first off, there's the legislative context. Um, So abortion is completely criminalized, and there's also the active prosecution of those suspected of having had an abortion. Nicaragua and Honduras have similar legislation, but there isn't the same active prosecution happening. And on top of that, there's no sign that the legislation will change anytime soon. So back um, kind of August, early September, the Legislative Assembly said that they've shelved any proposals for slight reform. 
And again, that was confirmed just this morning. I saw it on Twitter. Um, it was condemned by the feminist activi- activists and organizations in El Salvador as a real retrograde step. So it's the legislative political side. Um, there's a bit of a slide into dictatorship slash authoritarianism going on at the moment, as I'm sure many of your listeners are aware. So it started kind of February 2020. Armed soldiers and police officers aided the president in storming parliament so that they would uh, basically push through legislation he wanted to approve more funding for the sort of security and law enforcement policies that he has. January 2021, so the end of, or just the beginning of the year just gone, um, during uh, Maryland legislative elections, some uh, members of the FMLN opposition party were gunned down. And rather than condemning the attack, uh, Bukele took to Twitter to insult the party and to insinuate that the attack was planned by the party to gain public sympathy ahead of the elections. Um, he's also repeatedly incited violence against his political opponents and makes comments like, the public has a constitutional right to popular insurrection and that Salvadorans are justified in a supposed desire to burn all politicians alive. And during the first Legislative Assembly of this year, so in May 2021, he replaced five magistrates on the court's constitutional chamber. So that's one of the highest, it is pretty much the highest court in El Salvador. So he replaced them with judges favourable to him, and he also fired the Attorney General. And that's largely been seen as a move to avoid any scrutiny of him and allegations of corruption and all the rest of it. And in... Just at the beginning of September, so it was the 4th of September, the Supreme Court, now full of his cronies, ruled that uh, presidents can serve two consecutive terms, which paves the way for him to seek re-election in 2024. And lifting presidential term limits, anyone who's studied um, politics, dictatorship, democracy knows that's a real textbook indicator of a slide into authoritarianism. And then finally, he's referred to himself as the world's coolest dictator. He even had it in his Twitter bio for a while. So it's not like he's even hiding the fact that he has dictatorial authoritarian aspirations. So that's the political. And then finally, very quickly, social and economic context. So socially, I suppose El Salvador, sadly, it's probably most well known for the high levels of gang violence and migration. Um, On top of that highly patriarchal society, there's incredibly high rates of gender-based violence, transphobic, queerphobic violence, has one of the highest rates of child and teen pregnancy in the world. And in most places, that's decreasing, but there it's increasing. And then economically, you've got, I think, nearly a third of the population living in in, in poverty. Excuse me. Uh, So that's on less than $5.50 a day. And that's set to increase due to the pandemic. So there's lack of access to education, healthcare, sanitation, water, nutrition, And yet, this is the context into which they've just introduced Bitcoin as a national currency. It's the worst possible context you could do that. So it's a volatile currency that requires phones and internet. And when you've got, as I said, over a quarter, nearly a third of the population without even access to running water, you're introducing that currency. And it's a dream currency for money laundering, corruption, drug trafficking, gang violence. It's just shocking. So... There were mass protests against this, but somehow Bukele still enjoys strong support. And a recent poll put support at about 85% of people approving his presidency. So again, much like the legislation on abortion, there's no sign that things are going to improve anytime soon. Sadly, if anything, they're probably just going to keep getting worse. 
such a helpful context for the discussion that's going to follow. Thank you. What some people who maybe have a um, not a, a very advanced uh, knowledge or experience of El Salvador might have heard of the uh, Manuela, this case of Manuela, this uh, pseudonym. Could you tell us about the El Caso Manuela, um, who, who she was and, and the impact of this case within the country, but also in the region and uh, internationally? Yeah, for sure. So this one, it's, I suppose, had the biggest impact nationally and internationally. Region, Well, I suppose you could argue regionally in the regional human rights system. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. So um, it kind of all starts in February 2008. So at the time, Manuela was 32 years old. She was a single mother of two and she experienced severe pelvic bleeding and fainted following a fall. She was taken to the hospital and since she was experiencing heavy vaginal bleeding, hospital staff called the police because they suspected that she had self-induced an abortion. The following day, the police interrogated her while she was still in poor health and without a lawyer present. And then on the 28th of February, so two days after the fall and the fainting and all the rest, police officers questioned her parents in an aggressive and intimidating manner, accused her of covering, accused Manuela and them of covering up the crime. And they threatened to investigate her parents as accomplices. They then forced her father to sign a document that he couldn't read because he's illiterate. And they didn't explain the document to him. And this document turned out to be a formal accusation against Manuela. And it was used as a key piece of evidence in the trial against her. She was represented at trial by a very poorly prepared defence lawyer. And insufficient evidence, including that document, were used in the case against her. So on the basis of this evidence, and I would very strongly argue very deeply discriminatory attitudes against poor, rural, illiterate, single mothers, she was sentenced to 30 years in prison for aggravated homicide. And just to note, so what often happens in these cases is that women, girls, pregnant people are arrested on the charge of having had an abortion, but then that is up to aggravated homicide, which is the murder of a close family member. And that's what carries a sentence of between 30 to 40 years in prison. So Manuela spent two years in prison. And during that time, she was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Despite being in seriously poor health and despite that diagnosis, she wasn't provided with consistent chemo and she died in April 2010. So two years later, 2012, the Centre for Reproductive Rights and Agrupacion Ciudadana filed an individual petition on her behalf with the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Uh, we'll come back to that petition later. Uh, actually, we can talk about it now if you want, but we can come back to it for further context down the line too. So six years later, December 2018, the commission released a report on the merits. So this means that they analysed the case to see if there had been violations of human rights. And the commission concluded that the state of El Salvador was responsible for the violations of the right to life, personal liberty, fair trial, privacy, equal protection, judicial protection, health, and the principles of non-discrimination and equality enshrined in the American Convention of Human Rights. It also concluded that the state was responsible for violations of Article 7 of the Inter-American Convention on the Prevention, Punishment and Eradication of Violence Against Women, which is known as the Convention of Berlin do Pará. And specifically it was Article 7A, B and E of the Convention, which concern the obligation on states to implement policies to prevent, punish and eradicate violence against women, apply due diligence to prevent, investigate and impose penalties for violence against women, 
and take all appropriate measures, including legislative measures to amend or repeal existing laws and regulations or to modify legal or customary practices which sustain the persistence and tolerance of violence against women. So it made recommendations to the state on what needs to change. And on top of that, when I say it, I mean the commission, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights also referred the, this particular petition to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. So the way it works in the Inter-American Human Rights System is the commission is kind of the first port of call and they decide whether or not a case is admissible, both in terms of has it passed all the different admissibility hurdles and also in terms of the contents or the merits. And if they find that their case is especially significant or there's indications of, say, systemic violations, or it could be helpful in developing the jurisprudence of the court and the human rights system of the Americas, what they do is they're referred to the court. So it's really significant that this case has been referred to the Inter-American Court. Um, the judgment is due in December, so I'm currently waiting for that to come out so I can do a proper analysis and see what comes of it. I mean, they're probably going to restate the Commission's findings that there were multiple human rights violations. But the fact that it's from the court means it's legally binding, not only on El Salvador, but also on any of the other states that are members of the Organization of American States and that have acceded to the American Convention on Human Rights and the Convention of Belém do Pará. They are bound by those findings. So if that court interprets human rights in such a way that, say, you need to decriminalize abortion at a minimum in certain circumstances, then all those states have to do that. Whether they will or not, of course, remains to be seen. So that's kind of the quick overview of that. I'm happy to talk about the inter-American human rights system a little bit more if you want, but we can move on if needs be. And um, I suppose when it comes to the Manuela case, it has attracted a lot of attention in that sort of judicial world. But the one that really brought widespread media human rights advocacy attention to El Salvador was the case of Beatrice or Beatrice. It was March 2013, so not that long after the Manuela case, that uh, Beatriz, who was 22 at the time, living with lupus and pregnant with an anencephalic fetus, so um, a baby that would not survive after pregnancy or would die very soon after or would die very soon before birth. She was forced to continue with her pregnancy despite medical consensus that it posed a grave risk to her health and her life, and despite, as I said, that being a condition that's called incompatible with life outside the womb in medical parlance. So her health team recognised that she needed an abortion to save her life and protect her health. They and Beatrice had to fight, like go through legal action. So they had to file what's called an amparo, an appeal, alleging that the abortion legislation was unconstitutional because it violated her rights. So they had to file that with the constitutional bench of the Supreme Court. So our dear friends that we mentioned earlier that are now on the side of a dictator. But anyway, they filed that petition 11th of April and the court took six days to agree to hear the case, even though she was essentially dying at this point. So national, regional, transnational feminist and human rights organizations, including the Inter-American Human Rights System and the UN Human Rights System, intervened in the controversy. So at the end of April of that year, four UN, UN human rights experts issued a statement calling on the government to permit the abortion to prevent multiple human rights violations. Throughout April and May, her case received attention in the media. Individuals contacted the Salvadoran government. There was an amnesty international campaign. Even then, the court didn't make progress in its deliberations, which was 
kind of on purpose, as I'll show after. Um, so in response to that procrastination, three feminist organizations, including two we'll be talking about in a bit more detail, Agrupación Ciudadana and La Colectiva Feminista, requested that the Inter-American Commission intervene in the case. So one thing that the Inter-American Human Rights System can do if there's a sort of emergency situation is issue what are called precautionary measures. So the Inter-American Commission issues those. That was the end of April. And it called on El Salvador to protect the life, personal integrity and health of Beatrice by permitting the abortion. That was ignored. So then what happens is the Inter-American Court issues what are called provisional measures, which is basically them saying, listen, you really need to do something like yesterday to sort this situation out and prevent human rights violations. And despite all that, so despite clear medical evidence that she could not continue with the pregnancy, despite filing an ampero with the Supreme Court, despite interventions by civil society, human rights experts and all the rest of it, the constitutional bench of the Supreme Court ruled by a four to one majority at the end of May that the rights of the mother cannot take precedence over those of the Nasaturus or vice versa. So permitting the abortion would contravene the constitutional right to life understood as beginning at the moment of conception. So to further ensure that no legal precedent was set with regard to the complete ban on abortion, the Supreme Court's protracted deliberations resulted in her pregnancy passing the 20th week. And so the termination of pregnancy at that point ended up being induced labour rather than an abortion. You see that kind of playing around with terminology and timelines in Ireland as well. So rant for another day. But anyway, the baby was delivered by C-section and only lived for five hours. And then Beatrice was in the ICU for a while and one of her kidneys was permanently damaged. A petition was filed again with the Inter-American Commission back in November 2013 accepted in 2015 um i still actually haven't seen any decision on the merits though i, I don't it's sometimes it can be hard to find those documents despite my best efforts but that was beatrice and following her case this idea of last year so the 17 um in el salvador so other women like her like manuela who'd fallen foul of the complete criminalization and active prosecution um of people in el salvador suspected of having had abortions the feminist movement sort of rallied around them and started this campaign for their release, for an overhaul of the legislation. And that's kind of what's been going on. I think what's so, thank you for giving such a complete answer. I think it's fascinating for those of us who don't work in um, human rights law. It's really fascinating and kind of also staggering and depressing to realise the, despite, um, to understand the mechanisms of those bodies, but also see the limits Um and how they're resisted in particular contexts. Um, and I think because, you know, because we're not necessarily, we're using, we're, we're approaching these questions from different disciplinary angles. We often use terms like reproductive freedoms or reproductive rights in an in a interchangeable way. But sexual and reproductive rights, SRHR, um, is the concept that you use in your research. Could you tell us about the potential and the limits of those of these terms, both in the context of inter international human rights law and in Latin America? And how have feminist groups that you've looked at, um, have they engaged with these terms um, or continue to get, engage with these terms and with human rights frameworks more broadly? And what kind of outcomes have those engagements had? Yeah, sure. So sexual and reproductive health and rights or SRHRs, it's the term that's used in international human rights law. So I sort of have to use it. 
But what interests me and what I explored a bit and want to continue exploring as I research this is the extent to which the radical intersectional feminist understanding of reproductive freedom, as articulated primarily by Black feminists and Global South feminists, can be brought to bear on international human rights law. So when it comes to SRHRs, the potential is the fact that it is legally binding. You have this legitimacy and weight that international human rights law carries. And I also like the fact that it's kind of a more holistic term than, say, reproductive rights, because it takes, um, it encompasses everything from access to abortion to comprehensive sexuality education to LGBTQ rights. Um, so there's already that hint of an intersectional, systemic, transformative approach inherent to it. But the limits, I suppose, first off, there are practical limits. So the lack of implementation at the national level of no matter how legally binding international human rights law might be on paper, in practice, there's nothing that can really be done to sort of march in and tell a government what to do. On top of that, there's a massive lack of resources within these systems. So that leads to issues like a massive backlog in processing petitions, as is evidenced by the timeline of the Manuela case. I mean, she passed away 2010, filed a petition, I think, was it shortly after 2012. They didn't hear the case until 2018 and it's only going to the court now in 2021 so these things aren't exactly speedy and then the other limit is the kind of more theoretical conceptual one this tension between to what extent can international human rights law which for the most part is very much grounded in like the liberal tradition ever uh, embrace accommodate the infiltrated by feminist approaches and then reproductive freedom, the potential limits of that, the potential is it's much more expansive, it's much more radical and transformative. And it's often defined as, say, the complete physical, mental, spiritual, political, social and economic well-being of women and girls based on the full achievement and protection of their human rights. So that's from Ross, cited in Ackerman, everybody has its own feminism. And there, it's it's... To me, it always comes back to the Zapatista slogan of Otro Mundo es Posible. So it's recognizing that we have to link everything. It's not just about, oh, give people condoms, give people access to abortion and it'll be grand. It's rethinking everything about our relationships on an individual and societal level. And the limits, though, when it comes to reproductive freedom, I suppose, are translating it into practice, into policy and legislation, into international human rights law. and. Can we do that? Should we do that? What gets lost in translation? And so that's something I'm kind of planning on exploring further in my cur- in what's my current nascent research, which again we'll discuss later. Um, in terms of how feminist activist groups engage with the language and mechanisms of human rights and the outcomes of that. So one thing that's very interesting is if you look at the history of SRHRs, which I did in my PhD, and if anyone has way too much time on their hands and wants to read that, just let me know. But I kind of charted the development of what started as a very narrow idea of reproductive rights, and often one with some fairly problematic roots in eugenics and all the rest of it. It grew largely because of transnational feminist activism spearheaded primarily by feminists, Global South feminists, into this very um, radical, transformative, systemic idea of SRHRs as encompassing so many elements. 
So it really kicked off, I suppose, in the mid 70s when they had what was called the UN Decade for Women. So the UN has these um, human rights conferences at various points, and they often mark the midpoint of or the culmination of a themed decade. So from, I think it was 75 to 85, it was the UN Decade for Women. One of the key um, concrete outcomes of that was the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDAW, which is an international human rights law treaty all to do with discrimination against women. Fun fact, it is the international treaty with the most reservations, i.e. objections, of any treaty in the world, in case you were under any doubts as to how women's human rights are faring. Um, but that was one kind of outcome of it. But the other outcome was at these conferences, they have sort of a side NGO conference where activists from all over the world are able to come together, share ideas. And that resulted in a much more organized and active, I suppose, transnational feminist movement. It provided a great platform for them. And in the early 90s, there was a series of UN human rights conferences. So the big one in 93 was in Vienna, and that's where this idea of uh, women's rights are human rights uh, sort of really gained legitimacy. Yes, it took until 1993, but here we are. And then in 1994, you had the Cairo conference, which is where sort of reproductive rights and reproductive health were discussed quite uh, openly, I suppose, for the first time in a human rights context and recognized as human rights issues. Uh, there was a lot of backlash around sexual health and rights, which is this LGBTQ side of things. And there's some very interesting literature on that. Uh, that's well worth investigating for any listeners. And then there was also the Beijing World Conference on Women. And again, that was this sort of big celebration of women's human rights and how far we've come, but look how far we have to go. So thanks to feminist engagement with the human rights system, that is why we actually have SRHRs in international human rights law at all. And a lot of those feminists were coming from this perspective of reproductive freedom, systemic change. So again, there's just enough of that visible in SRHRs and international human rights law, but the extent to which the system and traditional legal reasoning can ever fully embrace it remains to be seen. So how do matters of citizenship intersect with struggles for sexual and reproductive rights? Okay, so in my thesis, I came up with this theoretical framework as one must, which I called the multi-level feminist citizenship project. I was trying to find a concise way of simply saying struggle around rights that take place at the interconnected national, regional and international levels. But that's the kind of slightly Germanic phrase I ended up with. Um, the starting point, though, it's that citizenship, again, like the law, is a discourse that's best conceptualized at its core as being about the right to have rights and the right to determine the scope of those rights. So if you look at political theories going back to Hannah Arendt, that's what's going on with it. So if we're talking about rights and human rights, maybe we should explore citizenship too. And then kind of from the mid 80s to the early 90s, there was some really interesting feminist analysis of citizenship going on. I particularly recommend Ruth Lister's work. And it's this idea that citizenship has operated to exclude and oppress women and gender diverse people, often on the basis of their gender, sexuality and reproduction. So you have all these discourses about how unruly and dangerous female sexuality and reproduction are if they're left unregulated. And you look at law, you look at philosophy, theology, medicine, you see those discourses going right back to Aristotle. So my argument was that restricting access to abortion is a manifestation of this exclusion from and oppression by citizenship. 
So women aren't permitted to determine if, when, whether, how to have children. It's the patriarchal state, it's their husbands who do that deciding. And demanding access to abortion challenges this assigned role of women as non-citizens with the sole purpose of bearing future citizens for two reasons. So the first off is it's demanding that women rather than the state or the patriarch are the ones who get to decide whether a child or future citizen is born. And then it's also then exercising a rights claim, which is something which only citizens who can only be male are allowed to do. So in the PhD, I did this massive discourse analysis and genealogy of the evolution of restrictive abortion legislation in El Salvador and Ireland, looking at how colonialism, Christianity, the gender order, all that stuff came together around this idea of exclusion and oppression in the name of citizenship and can be seen in restrictive abortion legislation. So I think it's a useful conceptual framing that exposes some of the deeper power dynamics that might, might not be immediately apparent. But understandably, people immediately think of citizenship in terms of legal citizenship and having a passport and all that kind of thing. So sometimes I do wonder if it causes more confusion than clarity. But for now, it's something I'm going to continue playing with. And especially in Latin American scholarship, there's some really cool feminist stuff on citizenship and particularly in the feminist movements. So I think it's kind of true to them and their words and their approaches to keep playing with that concept, even if in English language terms comes off as being something a bit different. You mentioned Ireland there, and one of the um, other episodes in this series with Dr. Kira Broderick discussed the links between activist groups in Argentina and Chile and Ireland, um, including the, the use of kind of shared symbols and slogans in those activist movements. What kind of transnational links um, have you been able to trace in your research between Ireland and El Salvador? Yeah, great question. And side note, it's a great episode and I'd encourage anyone listening now to go back and listen to that one if they haven't already. So in terms of symbols and slogans, the excuse me, the only one I've come across really that seems to have uh, appeared in both places is get your rosaries off my ovaries, which is one of my personal faves from all the protests over the past years. Um, and then I suppose in terms of clothing in both, there has been one iconic item of clothing that's really taken off. So in Ireland, we had the black repeal jumpers. To my shame, I never managed to get my hands on one. So if anyone has a spare repeal jumper, send it my way. And then in El Salvador, they've adopted that green neckerchief bandana that we've seen all over Latin America. Other than that, other than the get your rosaries off my ovaries signs, there doesn't seem to be a very solid transnational link between Ireland and El Salvador yet. There's a shared awareness, there's occasional tweets of solidarity and that kind of stuff. But I think it's definitely something that the Irish feminist movement and European feminist movements and Latin American feminist movements really could do with supporting more. El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras, Dominican Republic, Haiti, they get forgotten about the whole time and they have some of the worst abortion legislation on the planet and they don't get talked about. And I think, I don't know, I just have this hunch that it's something to do with white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, you know? and post-colonialism and neo-imperialism but who am I to say I'm just someone who's researched this for far too long thank you so much for talking to us Dr Rebecca Smith thank you to the Institute of Latin American Studies School of Advanced Study University of London for generously funding this project Thank you for listening to this episode of Cuerpa Politica. Join us for a new episode every fortnight and click on the follow button to receive notifications about podcast episodes.
Thank you so much for talking to us.